This episode was recorded in 2021. From Luminary Built It Productions and NPR, it's Wisdom from the Top. Stories of crisis, failure, turnaround, and triumph from some of the greatest leaders in the world. I'm Guy Raz, and on the show today, Indra Nui, former CEO of PepsiCo. I wasn't intending to interfere in what the division presidents were doing, but if I felt that something was not okay in terms of the target was too high or too low, I spoke up. So I'd say, well, I tell you what, guys, you say you're going to grow 10. I ran all the models we do at corporate. I don't see you growing at 10. You couldn't just have me be a paper pusher. Now, Indra Nui went from selling textiles and thread door to door to running one of the world's biggest food and beverage companies, PepsiCo. As recently as 2020, there were more people named James and Michael running Fortune 500 companies than there were women on that list. In 2021, the number of women leading Fortune 500 companies hit an all-time record of 41, or about 8% of the biggest companies in the world. And when Indra Nui joined PepsiCo in the mid-90s as a senior VP of strategic planning, there were exactly zero women on that list. In her first years at the company, she was frequently second-guessed by her male colleagues. She remembers being told that her ideas were, quote, destroying the culture of the company. But she had a spark, a super-sharp mind, and an intense determination to modernize and future-proof Pepsi, which would help her push past the doubters and the naysayers. And in 2006, Indra was named CEO of Pepsi, becoming only the fifth CEO in the company's history, a position she'd go on to hold for 12 years. During her time at Pepsi, she was consistently ranked one of the 100 most powerful women in the world. Today, she serves on the boards of Amazon and the International Cricket Council, and she's just written an autobiography called My Life in Full. It's a storied career that started at the ground level. At one point, just out of school, Indra was selling textiles door-to-door in her home country of India. Indra was born in 1955 in Chennai, then called Madras, and she was born into a world pretty far removed from where she'd end up. I was born barely eight years after India got independence. So this is very early in the days of India as a young democracy, and the country was still getting its footing. And in those days, Madras in the south was really a nerdy, sleepy town. Hmm. Social life was almost non-existent, and the city came to life around four or five in the morning and promptly went to sleep at eight o'clock. Eight o'clock would be stretching it. Hmm. There were no restaurants that really were open uh, on the streets. Uh, All stores were shut. The roads were absolutely empty. It was a whole different uh, life and an environment that I grew up in. Your father worked for the the state bank. Mm -hmm. He was uh, a bank manager. Then he became an internal auditor and uh, just had a very steady job and performed very well in that job. And your mom was sort of the manager of the household when you were growing up? 
my mother was the CEO of the household. I think mm-hmm. that's a better name because uh-huh. she'd run around doing so many things at the same time while keeping music going and singing along with it. Uh, no task was uh, too difficult for her. And that was my mother. Can you describe um, sort of how your parents interacted with you? I mean, were they very strict? Did they, uh, presumably, they had high expectations for you and your siblings, but um, were they sensitive, empathetic? Were they standoffish? What, what, what were they like when you were a kid? Sensitive? <laughs> that <laughs> word didn't exist. <laughs> <laughs> I think uh, the times that we were growing up and the society and the uh, you know South Indian Brahmin culture that I grew up in, um, the emphasis was on education. As mm. long as you studied and got good grades, uh, you were okay. If you didn't, everybody came down upon you like a ton of bricks. In my family, really, the head of the family was my grandfather, my paternal grandfather. He was a retired judge, very firm man. When he spoke, nobody else spoke. And if he said something, nobody dared question what he said. The wonderful thing about my grandfather was that he believed that women and men should be treated equally, given all the chances, and nobody should be held back from pursuing their dreams. And that, uh, you know, philosophy permeated through the whole family. My father was that way too. And he believed that whether it was daughters or sons, uh, it didn't matter. The children should be allowed to dream and we should enable all their dreams as long as it related to education. If it's about going and having a good time in a party or uh, a restaurant, that was not allowed. As long as you wanted to take more courses, study languages, do stuff related to schoolwork, that's all great. My mother was a bit of a disciplinarian, Hmm. but she was sort of a uh, study in contrasts because she had one foot on the brake and one foot in the accelerator. I think the fact that she didn't go to college and she couldn't realize her dreams made her want us to do all the things she couldn't. So she had her foot on the accelerator when it came to encouraging her daughters to do whatever they wanted to do. And um, she uh, gave us the confidence to uh, dream. At the same time, the society around us said, girls should be treated differently than the boys. Mm. And so she had a foot on the brake. And she always had to apply the brake and the accelerator judiciously. So she allowed us to fly at the same time. Hey, be careful. I'm going to give you a frame. You have freedom within the frame. Don't push the frame too much because that'll break the family. Mm. You, you mentioned the, the Brahmin culture that, that you grew up in, which, of course, is, is sort of traditionally the, the, the class of, of priests and intellectuals and, and teachers in, in India. Was achievement absolutely you know, paramount at home? Was that considered something to be very, very important? That was almost considered the right to exist in a way because, uh, you know, exactly as you put it, as priests, as uh, sometimes doctors, but teachers, uh, people of that, and administrators, a lot of Brahmins were the administrators, accountants. Um, you know, the, the expectation was that you would study, you would uphold your uh, group's expectations of you. Uh, remember, Brahmins those days were not wealthy, uh, but we were learned. Uh, we had education, all of us. We lived kind of sort of comfortably as a group, but we were not 
wealthy as such. We were comfortable. Uh, and so um, I think uh, the best example would be when parents and relatives got together of all the cousins. Um, the first thing they would talk about is the report card of their kids. <laughs> What did your kid get in math? <laughs> my kid got a 98 and we're devastated. Oh, my daughter got a 100. How, did you get her help? How did she get a 100? Everybody would talk about that. Wow. But I thought life was much more than just being a bookish person. I love to climb trees. I love to play cricket. I love to learn languages. I just love to do everything in addition to school. Uh, and so I was a good student, but I didn't focus on being a great student like my sister did. You were really, really into debate as well. I love debating. Um, debating helped you build your skills in terms of communication, confidence, being able to research topics and, uh, you know, whether you're given uh, the opportunity to speak for or against the topic, you had to develop a point of view. Yeah. And um, my ability to communicate, frame an argument, be pithy, argue it out, uh, get on stage and be confident. All of that came from my debating days. And I would encourage everybody to look into that as a building block discipline. Indra, you, you you write about um, something that happened when you were a teenager. Um, I think it was in 1968. Um, your father was involved in a, a pretty serious car accident and um, and spent m many months in recovery. And during that time, it forced your family to really burn through through the, through your savings um, and 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 put you in a, a financially precarious position as a family. And you you write about how that kind of made you start to think about how you, as a woman, needed to think about providing for yourself and and, and securing your own future. Um, do you remember thinking about those things at the time? So, uh, to be honest, we went through that whole incident as a nightmare because to see my beloved father, I mean, my father and I were thick as thieves because I was a favorite child. Uh, for my father. And, uh, you know, he he would take me along wherever he went, and I simply adored him. And to watch him in that state, uh, at home in bed, uh, struggling to walk. You know, in those days, there was no physical therapy. There were right. no hospitals. So everything, my mother was doing everything with my dad, besides running the household. Um, in retrospect, had my dad not been able to come back to work for whatever reason, Uh, what would have happened to the family? Yeah. How would we have lived? You know, what would be our education? It's it's remarkable because, you know, oftentimes we reflect on on how our lives turned out based on things that happened to us early in, earlier in life, and we can't fully understand them at the time. But clearly, I mean, it, you know, that experience is connected to so much of what happened to you and the decisions you made over the rest of your life. That's right. You know, it's, it, it sort of takes a place in the deep recesses of your memory. Mm. And it sort of releases certain uh, uh, ideas for you to pursue. You never realize where it's coming from, but it does. And then one fine day, you unlock the whole thing and go, oh, my God, this comes back to me vividly. And then, you know, you go through tears, you go through pain for a while as you relive those days. And then you realize that, you know, when you have the ability to help make change in society, 
to benefit young family builders or young parents who might be facing unprecedented difficulties, you better do something to help them. Clearly, you you had ambitions to pursue a career. You you went and, and received your bachelor's degree and went on to, to receive an MBA um, in India. And your dad had worked for the state, um, for the state bank um, in a management position. Was it your, you went to the Indian Institute of Management in Calcutta. Did, was it your ambition to sort of pursue a path of management kind of like your dad in India? Was that what you had in mind? I actually owe my uh, zest for business and my desire to go to IIM Calcutta to my sister because she's the one who set the stage by applying and getting into IIM Ahmedabad. And once she did, uh, it was inevitable that I applied to business school too because (laughs) the two of us were a year apart and we were fiercely competitive. We were very close but fiercely competitive. And once she got into Ahmedabad and went off to Ahmedabad to study business, I had no choice because had I not gone to Calcutta, I would have been viewed as, oh my God, she's a failed sibling. <laughs> <laughs> so you um, you get your, your MBA in 1976. And, mm-hmm. um, and I think the first, your sort of first job out of, of, of that degree was for a textile firm um, That's right. Based in India, was it? And it, it was called Metur Beard Cell. Um, That's right. And you're you were a, a salesperson. You were like a door to door with an MBA. You were like doing door to door sales, right? Well, this is the beauty of uh, t- training and uh, entry levels in those days. Yeah. In those days, if you graduated from business school, every business school graduate went through six to nine months of a trainee program. You, you did not start in uh, behind a desk. You started as a trainee. You learned a frontline job. You were either on the factory floor, you were selling, or you were doing something else that related to generating business for the company at the very basic level. Because the belief was, just because you're a management graduate, you don't you don't get to start in the office and lord over people. So my first job was selling thread door-to-door in Bombay. Hmm. And then when I was moved to Madras to the textile division, uh, I went out there to all the wholesalers and retailers selling printed fabrics. And believe me, I loved it, Guy. I truly, really really loved it. Yeah. Going door-to-door, knocking on doors, hearing people say not interested, no, moving on to the next one, maybe getting one sale out of a hundred knocks. Well, the difference is that it's not door-to-door in houses. It's door-to-door with wholesalers, Mm. door-to-door with retailers. And uh, I was the first woman doing this. So Mm. I was a novelty in most of these places. Right. There'd be a street full of wholesalers, you know, people sitting in a store with bales and bales of fabric and retailers would come to these wholesalers and buy, you know, two bales of pink, three bales of a certain print that this wholesaler was carrying. So these are wholesale uh, textile dealers. When I entered the street with my salesman, the first store, uh, I'd start talking. The guy would bring out the sweets and the coffee to drink. Pretty soon, everybody on the street knows that Madam is here. And then everybody's getting ready with <laughs> a better sweet or a better cup of coffee or a better drink so that I'd come into the store and actually feel great about having been there. Uh, and so 
I was welcomed. Uh, I was um, respected. And people just loved the fact that I truly cared about their business. Because I just didn't talk business. I'd ask them about their families. Hmm. Usually the wives or daughters came out and wanted to chat with me. Uh, some wives even started to send horoscopes of potential boys I could marry <laughs> to my parents. So I went through all that. But put it this way, I was embraced by the wholesalers and the retailers. And I learned the business through their eyes. You were... Um you were, I think, this around 1977. There was a, a labor strike um, that that kind of shut down production for a while. Um, and and around that time, you moved to Johnson and Johnson in in Bombay. Mm-hmm. Around that time, this is the late 70s. Um, this is really around the time you begin to kind of think about moving to the United States. What was the what was the impetus? What was the push that that got you to to take that leap? Because that's, I mean, a lot of people don't realize how how much courage it takes for a person to leave everything they know, their country, their family, their culture, their neighborhoods, their friends, um, and to and to go across the world, especially at that time, nineteen seventy seven, seventy eight. I mean, the distances were. Fast and different, no internet, the long distance calling, letters that took two, three weeks. Um, it's, it takes a lot of courage to do that. What was the, what was the spark that, that gave you the courage to finally make that decision? Well, this is the attraction of the United States that you just sort of summarized in the few words that you uttered now, Guy, because in India at that time, the U.S. was the global seat of innovation the global source of culture, music, art, everything about the U.S. as far as we were seeing was exciting. Uh, people who went to the U.S. at that time felt they could contribute in profound ways. They felt that they could actually thrive in this new country. And all of those friends of mine who'd gone to the U.S. would constantly call and say, look, knowing the kind of person you are, you're the, you're the kind that pushes boundaries, a bit of a go-getter, you would actually thrive in this environment. And my answer would be exactly what you said. It's so far away and away from my family. How am I going to do this? Remember, I wasn't fleeing persecution or anything. Right. This is a real, I mean, I was having a good life. But their point to me was, we are here for you. All of your friends who you knew in Madras, we are in the different universities in the United States. We are there as your support system. <laughs> and, uh, you know, when I discussed it with my parents, they dismissed it saying, you're not going to get in. We can't afford to pay for you, so don't even think about it. Uh, but then uh, when I wrote the GMAT, then I applied to the Yale School of Management and got in. And then I got you know, a combination of loans and scholarship and financial aid to attend Yale. All of a sudden, the fear set in and how are we going to send her away? So... Um, uh, at that point, when I mustered all the courage I could because mentally I'd already crossed the ocean. And uh, the pull of the U.S. was just a little too much for me at that time because uh, I was excited, I was scared, but I was just uh, full of uh, excitement about what the future was going to bring because uh, everything I'd read, what I'd seen in Johnson & Johnson as an American multinational, the way American business did uh, it's business in India. I looked at all of this and said, this is what I want to learn and be a part of. 
you get to to New Haven, to Yale, uh, in 1978, what was your impression? I mean, did you feel um, like a fish out of water? Did you feel comfortable? Was it easy for you to fit in, or did that did that pose it to be a challenge? The first month was hell, real mm. hell, because you know you land in JFK, and for a person coming from India. Uh, where the international airports weren't even really developed in those days, uh, where the international airport maybe had three gates, mm. and um, there were more people sending you off than there were passengers. <laughs> so, uh, and you come from that environment, you land in JFK, none of the chaos that you see in Indian airports, none of the sounds, everything is orderly, the airport looks clean, the immigration line works beautifully. Then you get into this... Uh, bus called the Connecticut limousine, which takes you to New Haven. You're motoring through organized traffic, no animals on the Mm -hmm. road. I look at all this and I go, wow, this is unbelievable. Everything is so clean. And there's actually lines on the road where the traffic follows these rules and regulations. How is that possible? So I'm now, I'm like a kid in a candy store. I'm just, I'm, my jaw's dropping looking at all this. Then I land in Yale. The majesty of the university is breathtaking. But in those days, Yale did not have a support structure for international students. <laughs> they had an office of international students that processed you into the university, but then you were sink or swim. Now, all of a sudden, our suitcases those days didn't even have wheels, guy. <laughs> that's a right. new invention. Right. <laughs> so I'm, I'm there with this gigantic suitcase that's filled to the brim with all the wrong stuff. Uh, and a worn-up bag that I'm carrying, no backpack, and I have to carry six blocks over to my dorm that I know nothing about. And they tell me, go east on this street and turn. I don't know where east and west is over there. So this was like a new language, a new approach. Um, Then I get to Hall of Graduate Studies, this huge, imposing dorm. Quiet, nobody there. Hollow, I mean... You could hear a pin drop. Hmm. I go to my room and I am ready to take the next plane back because there's nobody to talk to. I'm hungry, hungry, hungry like you won't believe it. There's nothing in the room except a bed and a chair and I have to put on sheets and things like that and uh, figure out how to get some food. And so the first first week was really, really... uh, heartbreaking. The second, third, and fourth week were okay. After that, it was like, wow, am I glad I came here. When we come back in just a moment, how Indra Nui graduated Yale with a ton of ambition and a mountain of student loans and quickly became one of the most sought-after executives in the country. Stay with us. I'm Guy Raz, and you're listening to Wisdom from the Top. Hey, welcome back to Wisdom from the Top. I'm Guy Raz. So by the late 1970s, Indra Nui had packed up her life in India and moved across the world for the chance to go to the Yale School of Management. It was a bold move, especially because at the time, there were not a lot of people that looked like her in corporate America. Uh, I've read that when you, one of your first internships, summer internships while at a student at Yale, 
uh, was with Booz Allen Hamilton, uh, the the consulting, the, the management and in, in, in consulting firm. Um, you would come into work every day in a sari because that was who you were. That was you were being authentic to yourself. Um, and but it, but it was also um, very different, right? Because people were not many people had never seen that before. Well, I actually give Booz Allen Hamilton of those days a lot of credit because I was the only one in a sari. I think in the entire system. And I was wearing a sari. To say I was being authentic would be a little bit of an overstatement guy. I'd say that I desperately wanted to fit in, hmm. but I didn't have the money to fit in. And when I did try, I had a dreadful experience because I bought the wrong clothes that didn't fit well, and I looked like a freak of nature. But I also realized that there was not one day that Booz Allen made me feel different or unwanted. So I have a lot to thank Booz Allen Hamilton for. When you when you finished, when you graduated and you, you began your career, because your first job was was at, at Boston Consulting Group, um, was, I mean, did you, could you have imagined at the time, you know, in your graduating class at, at, at Yale and when you started working at, at BCG, would you have imagined or could you have imagined that you would one day be running one of the 50 biggest U.S. companies, I mean, one of the biggest companies in the world, at that time, would, do you think you would have said that about yourself or people would have said that around you like, oh, that's Indra, watch her. She is going to be, you know, one of the most successful CEOs one day. You know, it's interesting. When I was in my first year at Yale, people just looked at me as an oddity, hmm. bright. When she speaks, she says the right things, but boy, these international students speak weird and they dress weird. So we were viewed as, you know, nice people, but really don't belong. In the second year, because of my Booz Allen Hamilton credentials, I was looked at with a little bit more respect. And people said, you know, she's more than smart. She got into consulting and she did well and she's got another offer in consulting. So she must be pretty good. And so there was newfound respect for me, but give me a break. Being a CEO of a company, I'll be honest with you, Guy, even the week before I was appointed CEO of PepsiCo, I didn't know I was going to be CEO of PepsiCo. So, no. I mean, if I told you that when I was born, I knew I was going to be CEO. I mean, no. This was just one of the most improbable uh, trajectories. It sounds like when you thought about yourself and who you were at the time, you weren't thinking, I'm going to do something enormous one day. No, because, you know, my husband Raj and I got married in 1980, the year I graduated from Yale. And um, we both had nothing. We were starting from zero. Uh, and so all that we're focused on is how do we pay off our student loan? Right. Uh, because the fact that I had a student loan and I owed that money made me feel very uncomfortable. So any money we had, we first tried to pay as much as we can towards the student loan. We always saved a little bit because we believed savings was important. And then we lived life for the rest of the money. And it wasn't about clothes. It wasn't about having a good time. It was just about living life within our means. And we balanced our checkbook every week. I mean, we were meticulous in how we managed life. And at that time, you don't think about bigger and bigger jobs. You think about holding on to the job you have, doing a phenomenal job in our respective jobs. Both of us were working and figuring out how to make sure that as a, it's interesting, and I'm not going to use words that I hope don't come out wrong. 
I felt that I was at that time a guest in the country, as did my husband. And we felt we had to earn our way to be a citizen of the country. So we worked very hard at that. You um, pretty early in your you were, you'd moved Chicago to Chicago to work for for BCG and, and your husband Raj was getting his degree at the University of Chicago and and I think at the time your mom mom eventually came to live with you and your husband in Chicago your daughter was born and a lot was going on in in your life at the time what do you what do you remember about that time I mean you were presumably you were traveling a lot as a consultant was it um, I mean it sounds like there was a lot happening, a lot to, to kind of handle. Well, you know, when I became a consultant, my husband and I sat down and talked. Consulting those days, especially in Chicago, all your clients were in different parts of the Midwest. And uh, without internet, without FaceTime, without any of that technology, you had to rely on long-distance calls in the night with your AT&T card. And um, uh, you couldn't connect otherwise with your spouse. And so you know, I was gone for three, four days at a time, but we both had an understanding that we both were going to work hard to make some money so we could save some for our own future if something, you know, went wrong. We never had to worry about how the other one would manage. So for both our sakes, we said we need to have savings, we need to pay off our loans, and we always wanted a family. And, uh, you know, when we had kids, we wanted to make sure that they would be comfortable, and um, uh, they could do whatever they wanted to. And uh, we just worked towards that. So there was a constant reinforcement of our relationship because we talked about what we both were doing. It, it seems, this is, it's very strange to even say this, but it seems like fate um, intervened in your life twice in, in similar ways, and both were car accidents the first time of course, was your father's um, when you were a young girl. Second time was 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 your own um, in 1986. That was a pretty severe accident. But I, it sounds like that also prompted you to make some some different life decisions about the way you wanted to live your life. Uh, you know, it was tough leaving consulting, but um, at that point, uh, with the accident with the two-year-old daughter at that time, I realized that being away from home constantly, even though my mother was now living with me and helping care for my daughter, I was just not going to work because first, I was uh, uh, on a walker and crutches for a good six months and wow. that, the, the prognosis wasn't great. And I realized that traveling was not an option. And then uh, Motorola came calling at that time. So a combination of factors uh, made me sit back and say, it's time to hang up my boots in consulting. The best decision I made, fate intervened, and the best decision I made going to work in Motorola. And, and really, this was the kind of the first in a series of steps you took that was based around your family, that was based around wanting to be closer to your home, your, your kids. And that, that begins this kind of real sort of career trajectory working in, in the corporate world. Um, what, what do you remember about that time um, working for Motorola? You know, Motorola at that time was just a fine, fine, fine technology company. Mm. I was writing the rules on uh, wireless communication, was leading in pagers and two-way radio, and uh, the cell phone was, you know, first launched by Motorola. 
Yeah. Uh, and uh, it was just a company, you know, huge in semiconductors, government electronics. It was a very, very exciting company. Hmm. I, I know, Indra, that you spent the next uh, few years working in, in the kind of the corporate tech world, um, first at, at Motorola, and then uh, you moved over to a company called ABB, which is this um, place, sort of international tech and electronics company. And you, you actually became a, a senior vice president there. And and you've written about some some key mentors who helped you um, along the way. But, but I don't think it's immodest to say that that you did phenomenally well at these companies. I mean, so well that that you started to get noticed by a lot of other big companies, uh, including GE. And they, they from from what you write, they really wanted to hire you. But how did how did Pepsi come on your radar? Well, um, one fine day, a headhunter calls and says, will you talk to PepsiCo? I go, PepsiCo? They own KFC and Taco Bell and Pizza Hut, and I don't even eat meat. What are you talking about? Uh, they go, well, you know, it's a very youthful company, a fantastic company, and this is hell of a job, and you've got to talk to them. So I came in, and I my first interview was with the person who had the job as head of strategy. Uh, and he was moving on to a big business leadership job. And after an hour with me, he said, you're now going to meet Bob Detmer, the CFO, and I'm going to guarantee you and he won't get along. I said, oh, that's a great introduction. I said, why not? He said, because you both are so different. He said, Bob Detmer is your quintessential uh, New England uh, wasp, and uh, you are just not that. You guys are not going to get along. I said, it's too late. I'm here, so I'll go see him. What a strange thing to say. Well, I heard a lot of strange things at that time. <laughs> so I went to see Bob Detmer, and the one-hour interview stretched to one and a half hours, stretched to two hours. We both struggled to end the interview because we got along so wow. famously. I mean, Bob Detmer was fantastic. Um, not only did he charm me about PepsiCo, we started to map out ways we could work together to make the company even better. He made me feel welcome. He and his wife embraced Raj and me and basically said, even if you choose not to come to PepsiCo, we're going to remain very close hmm. friends. Uh, and then I went to see Wayne Calloway, the CEO. Wayne is a uh, remarkably quiet guy, hmm. just a beautiful human being. But in my 60-minute interview with him, I must have spoken for 57 or 59 minutes, not because I wanted to talk, let me assure you. Because Wayne has a habit of throwing one line and then waiting for you to talk and then talk again because he's not saying much. Hmm. That was just Wayne. Um, and then, you know, the conversation ended and I met a couple of other executives and I said, you know what, let me go home and think about GE or PepsiCo. Hmm. And I told both companies I'd give them an answer on a Wednesday or something like that. And then I get this most amazing call at ABB. And my secretary picks up and she says, Indra, somebody called Wayne Calloway is on the line. <laughs> I go, oh, somebody called Wayne Calloway. Let me pick up the phone. And I say, yes, uh, Wayne, uh, you know, we start talking. And then he's talking now for five minutes, <laughs> which, you know, is an unusual amount of time for him. Yeah. And he ends by saying, you know, I just came out of the GE board meeting because Wayne was on Jack's board. And he said, uh, Jack indicated to us that you are likely to join GE. And this is Jack Welch. Yep. 
And then he said, GE is a great company, and I can understand why you'd want to join them. Yeah, I mean, GE at that time was the hottest company on the planet. I mean, Jack Welch was the hottest CEO in the world at the time. Totally. And so Wayne goes, I can understand why you'd want to join GE and Jack, and I would too if I were you. But he said, let me make PepsiCo's case one last time because you said you'd make your decision on Wednesday and today's Monday. <laughs> he said, I'm going to assume you still haven't made the decision, so I want to make my case. And he said, my case is simple. We don't have somebody like you in our executive ranks. I need somebody to come in here that has a global perspective, that thinks differently with the viewpoint of other industries <laughs> and help PepsiCo get to a different place. And he said, I commit to supporting you, developing you, and making sure you're successful in PepsiCo. And all that I ask you is give us a chance. That level of humility and uh, outreach touched me enormously, Guy. And I tell you what I did. I drove over to PepsiCo and I said, I accept your job. Wow. I mean, amazing. Because everything would have indicated that GE was the natural fit. That that's, those are the industries you'd come from, you'd experience in those areas. They were recruiting you hard. GE was such a hot company. I mean, Jack Welch was writing bestsellers and uh, everybody knew who he was. People didn't know who the CEO of Pepsi was at the time. I mean, that 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 was a almost like a counterintuitive move, but it was that call that pushed you over the edge. I will say something. This also made me realize that you can draw all kinds of matrices on companies and criteria to decide which company you should join. In fact, I had a piece of paper which said Monsanto, GE, PepsiCo criteria, and I was giving you know ratings of scale yeah. one to five. And uh, all of that you can do, but at the end of the day, it's in your gut what you think makes sense for you. In a moment, how Indra rose up the ranks at Pepsi to become CEO, despite plenty of naysayers. Stay with us. I'm Guy Raz, and you're listening to Wisdom from the Top. This message comes from NPR sponsor ClickUp, a productivity platform that's saving people one day every week. How? It's simple. ClickUp brings all of your work into one place. You get tasks, docs, goals, chat, and more in one tool so you can focus on getting work done without switching apps. It's how teams and companies like Uber, Google, and Webflow save time. ClickUp is for free forever. So try ClickUp today at clickup.com slash NPR. This message comes from NPR sponsor Intuit QuickBooks Live. As a small business owner, you do everything yourself, but now you don't have to. Introducing a major advancement in small business bookkeeping, having someone else do your books for you right from your laptop. Intuit QuickBooks Live connects you with trusted experts who understand your business, guaranteeing your books get done right. So do the best thing you can for your business by letting QuickBooks take bookkeeping off your plate. Learn more at quickbooks.com. Hey, welcome back to Wisdom from the Top. I'm Guy Raz. So in 1994, Indra Nui was recruited by PepsiCo's CEO, Wayne Calloway, to join the company as a senior VP of strategic planning. 
And from an outsider's perspective, it might have seemed like an unusual move. After all, she'd been working in technology and electronics for more than 10 years. And here she was, moving to an industry she'd never worked in. I didn't know the restaurant business one bit. Hmm. And, you know, interestingly, I did tell that to Wayne, you know, when I talked to him, I said, Wayne, I don't know the restaurant (laughs) business. And to me, uh, you get deep into the business when you start. I'm not even a... uh, meat eaters. So how is this going to work with me and Taco Bell and KFC? Pizza Hut, I can get by. His point is, I'm not hiring you to formulate products. I'm not hiring you to taste the products. I'm hiring you for a strategy position to help us think where Pepsi ought to be going globally. <laughs> wow. And he was right. All right. So you join PepsiCo. Um, And presumably the first two years or the first at least year, you kind of spend time digging into the business, trying to understand all parts of the business. To me, it doesn't matter how senior you are. If you don't spend the time learning the nuts and bolts of the business, you're actually not doing a great job for the company. And I honestly believe that at every point in time, I had to zoom in to learn the details of the business and then zoom out to understand what the implications of, you know, your actions could be on the day-to-day operations of the business. So I was constantly zooming in and zooming out. So I spent the first, I would say, six to nine months learning the nuts and bolts of each of the businesses. When you, I mean, you were sort of tasked with leading um, leading strategy from from the beginning and that's a huge responsibility, right? I mean, so so how do you, you know, how did you approach it at the beginning? I mean, you you mentioned obviously diving into the business and 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 really kind of educating yourself about all the different aspects of the business. But but do you, did you also spend the first sort of year or two kind of listening before you set out a plan, or or were you kind of expected to deliver a plan? fairly quickly. I had a big benefit in my first year. One, Roger Enrico returned to the company and he was running restaurants. And so I was working with him directly. So I was providing the strategic perspective, but Roger was providing the implementation and the practical perspectives, how to make it work at PepsiCo. So I kept my ears open and I learned as much as I could from Roger. But then this is where the BCG experience comes in And it's invaluable because if you really think about consulting, what consulting does for you is provide you a way to approach an industry and understand the strategic levers of that industry and then that company. So it doesn't matter which industry or which company you're thrown into, you know how to look for what drives competitive advantage, what drives superior profitability, what drives success. And once you approach PepsiCo that way, you learn the fundamentals of the business at a 15,000 feet very, very quickly. And then you start tinkering at the implementation level. How do we land these? Uh, If, for example, in restaurants, uh, you know, same-store sales growth is a critical driver of profitability. How do you drive same-store sales growth? So now you go to the restaurants and figure out why is it your same-store sales has not grown? So you take the value drivers, then you land them into each business to understand why they're working or not working. So it's all of the entire set of experiences I had before PepsiCo. I could now apply and deploy at PepsiCo. You write that about 
two years in, um, you actually, for a time, considered leaving PepsiCo. This is this is a, during Roger Enrico's tenure as CEO, um, and you you had felt some tension with colleagues around uh, around metrics, around your role, and uh, what, what was going on? Well, you know, I was in corporate, and corporate is always a bad word in most companies. And the people before me were very, very qualified people who had the job before me. But they also tended to be hands-off from the divisional uh, heads. Um, I wasn't intending to interfere in what the division presidents were doing, but if I felt that something was not okay in terms of the target was too high or too low, or I thought they were going to miss their forecasts, um, I spoke up. You couldn't just have me be a paper pusher. Right. So I'd say, well, I tell you what, guys, you say you're going to grow 10. I ran all the models we do at corporate. I don't see you growing at 10. And they'd say, who are you to second guess us? I'm not second guessing you. I'm just telling you what the models say. So don't question me, question the models. Uh, and so there were a couple of people in the senior management uh, ranks that would sort of uh, destroy me at every division president's meeting where they would be rude. They would say things like, corporate planning is trying to run a company. We're destroying the culture of this company. Wow. And when Roger was CEO, he would just listen, do nothing about it. And I put up with it for a while. And then I said, okay, I've just finished this massive piece of work on restaurant strategy, which I'm going to present to the board. I'm going to present it to the board and I've had it. I'm just going to walk out because I can't take this anymore. I was yeah. not afraid about walking out. So when I walked into Roger's office and said, guess what, Roger, the presentation's done. We're going to share it with the board tomorrow. But I got news for you. After the board presentation, I'm walking out. And it's been wonderful working at PepsiCo. I'm not expecting anything. I don't want severance. I don't want anything. I'm just leaving. Wow. He just looked at me and his pencil started to twiddle on the table. And he just gave me that look and he said, uh, I'll talk to you later. He was furious. And he knew exactly why. I told him why I was leaving too. And um, the division president's meeting that was supposed to start in the afternoon, the meeting that typically attacked me all the time, a couple of people, was delayed by several hours. <laughs> and Roger, I guess, had a chat with all of them. And then when the meeting actually started, it was a love fest. <laughs> Absolute love fest. And uh, the next day I presented to the board and then Roger came to me after the board meeting and said... We're all in business. Let's get on to the next steps. I just looked at him and said, what next steps? He said, the next steps. You're just in charge of all the next steps. All other subjects are closed. Hmm. And he just walked away. Wow. I mean, he basically read them the riot act. That's what he did. It's really interesting because it, 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 it sounds like the decision you made wasn't like this sort of strategic power play. You were just, you were, you just said, you know what? I don't need this in my life. And That's you all walked in and... And you said, hey, this is great. I enjoyed it. I'm going to carry this project out, and then I'm, I'm going to step down. It's clear that, you know, there are people who don't want me around. And, and, and he either was not aware of this or was not willing to, to do anything about it. But you were, you were too important for him to let that happen. You know, he knew exactly what was happening because it happened in London when we were at a meeting. And I just walked out. Right after I finished my presentation, I just... You were just treated with, with disrespect. Like, it seems so weird. I mean, these are colleagues. Like, 
I mean, I guess in the context of today, we think of it differently. This is now in the in the mid '90s, and 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 corporate culture was it was different even back then. And I was the only woman in the room, to be honest. And yeah. I was surprised yeah. that a couple of I wouldn't say all. I shouldn't define all of PepsiCo by a couple. A couple of people were downright, um, you know, just not okay. And I felt mm-hmm. Roger could have put them in their place, but he didn't. And so I told him, I said, not only are they're constantly attacking me. You don't put them in their place. And his point was, you always have too thin a skin. And I told him that you, you're oblivious to what's going on. And so if you're not sensitive to how I feel, shame on you. So uh, I'm just telling you, thin skin or no thin skin, I'm leaving. Wow. But when you made that decision to say that, it actually, by kind of standing up for yourself and and, and taking a stand saying, look, I'm not going to take it, but I'm not going to fight you. I, this is great, and I'll take my, you know, my, my work somewhere else. Um, that actually cleared a path for you to do the work that you needed to do. Most certainly, because it, it actually, it was like a uh, light bulb had gone off. And uh, I've never looked back from that day. Wow. All right, so you would go on to kind of guide some some really big decisions that 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 Pepsi um, took over the course of the next ten years, divesting from the restaurants, Pizza Hut, KFC, Taco Bell, and a big move, which was buying Tropicana in 1998. And at the, I think at the time there was a lot of internal opposition to that decision to buying Tropicana uh, because it was expensive and people were like orange juice, but it turned out to be a, a hugely important. Acquisition. You know, again, all of these acquisitions were made with a very strategic framework in mind. The strategic framework being we needed to future-proof this company. We needed yeah. to make sure that every day part was covered. Uh, and so all these uh, acquisitions we made to transform the company were huge. And in the, in, in, in the case of the restaurant business, it wasn't really a divestiture of restaurants as much as we were unfettering the restaurants from yeah. a packaged goods culture because restaurants were a service business. PepsiCo was a packaged goods culture. Yeah. And so we unfettered the restaurants from the packaged goods culture. That was, you know, the big move, but the right move. Um, another acquisition, Quick Roads, which included Gatorade, yep. which dominated and probably still does the, the sports drink category. Um, I'm curious, was at that time, and maybe even to, to this day, are, were and are a lot of decisions made by Pepsi driven by its competition with Coca-Cola? You know, beverages are only about 45, 50% of the company. Right. So I think- Because it's snack foods, right? Lays and Fritos and Doritos. That's right. It's huge. Doritos, Tostitos, Cheetos. I mean, amazing products. I think that because all the analysts who cover us are the beverage analysts, they tend to put us into the Coke versus Pepsi, uh, you know, frame. In in reality, uh, Pepsi is is a company like no other because we are a very different portfolio than our beverage competitor. But if you took Pepsi out of the beverage universe, these beverage analysts won't have anybody to cover. So that's the challenge. And also, business schools thrive on a Coke versus Pepsi competition case. Yeah. They still teach it as if uh, it's still a current 
a competition of two beverage behemoths, which is really not the case. Yeah. But that's okay. It makes for good reading and good commercials and good everything else. It is remarkable that, I mean, Coca-Cola is and Pepsi are, um, obviously they do different things, but um, and Coca-Cola is a, a larger company, but not that much larger than Pepsi. Coca-Cola is a larger company in revenues in beverages. As a total revenue, we are much larger. Coca-Cola's market capitalization is slightly bigger than ours only because right. it's a largely franchise company and makes different sort of returns versus PepsiCo, which is also a manufacturing company. So um, uh, PepsiCo is a more, I say, diversified company with a very uh, steady future because you know we're not dependent on food service or restaurant business to grow. We can grow in breakfast items like Quaker. We can grow in Frito-Lay. We can grow in beverages of all kinds, carbonated and non-carbonated. Our namesake brand, Pepsi, is only 15% of our revenue. Yeah. For the other company, their namesake brand is a huge percentage of the revenue, more like 50 or 60%. Indra, in, in 2006, you were named CEO of PepsiCo uh, when, when Steve Reinemann stepped down. Um, you mentioned to me earlier in this interview that, that a week before that happened, uh, you would not have imagined that, that that would be the case. But, I mean, you, you must have had some inkling that, that you were among those being considered. Uh, you know, it's interesting, and this may be a, a, a surprise to most people. There was no point that, you know, all the potential candidates were told that there was going to be a CEO succession because Steve was still young. And we were having a great time working together. And so uh, the fact that the board was contemplating succession because Steve wanted to step down was a big surprise to us. Um, and uh, we were never called in to present our blueprint for the company because Mike White and I, who were both on the board at PepsiCo and uh, would make presentations to the board regularly, the board knew us. We were known commodities. But we were not, not asked to appear in front of the board and lay out our future plans for the company and, uh, you know, whether the two of us could work together. Nobody asked us those questions. Uh, and so when uh, Steve uh, walked into my home on a Monday morning and said, on Saturday the board is going to meet and vote you in as uh, CEO and I'm stepping down, I'm like, whoa, 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 what for? Why are you doing this? Uh, it was a big shock. It was a shock for Mike. It was a shock for me. I mean, and this you're 12 years in, so the board knew you. The you know, obviously that you were known within the company. You had already achieved so much at that point. But when you were named as CEO, you write about how um, some of the the reactions from you know writers and analysts and in media um, really kind of got to you. Um, you know, some of the descriptions about you or the 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 anonymous quotes in, in articles about you um, really you really kind of bothered you and understandably <laughs> yeah, I can laugh about it now then when they write about this uh, uh, sort of a funny person who walks around bare feet singing songs to herself and that's what we, they would write about you yeah she wears saris to work. I never wore a sari to work, but doesn't matter. You know, at that time, they were painting me as this absolutely exotic person who had come into the boardroom of the staid, prim and proper PepsiCo. I guess they wanted to draw a major contrast mm. to everybody else out there. 
I don't care. In retrospect, I laugh it off. But at that time, I'm like, see me, I'm one of these totally uh, conservative people who wears long skirts and jackets and, you know, shirts and always uh, with the same uh, kitten heel shoes and I don't smoke, I don't drink. Give me a break, guys. Maybe at six o'clock I kick off my shoes because the heels hurt. And uh, maybe when I'm stressed out, I hum a tune, but relax. Don't write about me as this hippie kind of a person. But it didn't matter. You know, they painted me in interesting ways. But to be honest, guy, that's all behind me because as the company went on, as my tenure as CEO went on, um, you know, there were supporters and detractors. Yeah, The detractors are usually louder than the supporters. But then as long as the board was behind me, I felt I could do anything, which is what I did. You had several big sort of initiatives that you put out while you were at Pepsi. This one was uh, sort of reclassifying the products with, with a sort of a fun category for the you know chips and soda and then a kind of a better category, which was the, the diet and low-fat drinks and, and, and low-fat foods and then the good-for-you things like oatmeal and, and other products. Mm-hmm. Um, and you, you really pushed this initiative called Performance with a Purpose. Um, what, what, was, what was that initiative about? What was the idea behind it? This was way back in 2006. And uh, we were beginning to do things to move the portfolio to a healthier mix. Quaker Oats was an example of an acquisition that helped yeah. us get there. Uh, you know, we had bought uh, Naked Juice. That was another example. Tropicana was in our portfolio. Uh, and so we were making all the right moves to add calcium to uh, Tropicana juice, uh, you know, take uh, sugary drinks out of the vending machines in schools. So there were a lot of actions that we were taking to make the company a better company, if you want to call it that, and future-proof it. But when I became CEO, the environment for companies like ours in the marketplace was very different. The talk on obesity was very, very high. There was a big noise yeah. about it all over society in every country. We're talking about suing uh, uh, beverage makers, right? Exactly right. And, you know, yeah. com- countries were threatening taxes, uh, portion control, uh, drinks. I mean, all kinds of noise on our industry, in our industry. There was also a hue and cry about plastics. Uh, you yeah. know, how much plastic was being... Uh, there still is. There still is, but then it had started. So, And then uh, uh, in many, many countries, we were viewed as a water parasite. Use too much water. The town doesn't have water to eat or drink. And there's a Pepsi plant or a Coke plant close by using a lot of water. So we had to worry about water. We had to worry about plastics. Uh, and then those were also the days where it was very hard to get good people to come and work in traditional consumer products companies. People hmm. wanted to know what the purpose in life was. Why because should... they were going to, t- the, the best people were going to the tech sector? Totally, tech or someplace yeah. else. But it, there was a newfound awareness about purpose and what do we want to do with our jobs? Why should we work at this company and give it all our, our time if the company is not going to do something to make the world a better place. There was a consciousness. A conversation that's happening, that's happening again now, today. And it needs to. It needs to. Yeah. And so because that consciousness had been awoken, um, you know, to me, the only way to future-proof PepsiCo, to make sure that we would remain successful well into the future, was if 
I, could, I found a way for the company to deliver great performance because we're always about good performance, good financial performance. But figured out how we can transform the portfolio to healthier products, more good for you and better for your products. How do we uh, reduce our environmental footprint? So we reduce our costs and we get a license to operate in societies around the world. And then how do we create an environment inside PepsiCo so people feel they can really come in and feel like they brought themselves to work? So we worked on every aspect of purpose and performance and uh, put the monies behind sugar reduction, salt reduction, dialing up zero calorie products, making healthier products taste great and be ubiquitously available. We did a ton of work on water reduction in our plants, uh, how to make thinner bottles, how to think about recycling in a whole different way, and what kind of programs you should be offering our employees so that uh, they knew that PepsiCo looked at them as an asset for the company, not a tool of the trade. So we changed a lot of things in the company, and it did good things for us. Our performance was good over the period. Our retention rates went up. Our attrition rate was way down. And uh, PepsiCo is once again viewed as a phenomenal talent bank for industry as a whole because we were so filled with outstanding leaders. You were, during your tenure, um, often the only or one of just a few female CEOs of a Fortune 500 company. Um, and with that came um, sort of you um, as a symbol, a model, um, an example, all of the things that, that, that tend to happen when somebody is the quote the only or one of a few of 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 a group representing um a larger group um and at the same time you from from what you write were kind of roiling internally because of your on the one hand you were incredibly successful running pepsi and and sort of held up as this amazing model on the other hand um kind of struggling with your own feelings of guilt about the time or rather the lack of time you had with your family. That push and pull is inevitable because um, yeah. every one of the jobs I was doing was a full-time job. Being a CEO was three full-time jobs. Being a wife, a mother uh, was all full-time jobs, each one of them. Being a daughter was a full-time job. And um, the day is still 24 hours. And believe me, I was using yeah. that day to its fullest because I didn't sleep much. I learned how to multiplex. I could do three or four things at the same time. So I was going, um, you know, fast. But there is no way that you can do each job to a satisfaction level that makes you feel great about it. It was a constant juggling act. And the, you had to do the juggling maybe three or four times a day. Uh, because some priority had to shift something at home, had to get precedence over something you're doing at work. So you go through this juggling, and because of this juggling act, um, you know, you don't feel guilty about work, but you feel guilty about home, especially my two kids. I'd say, my God, when I left home today, they looked at me longingly, saying, I wish mommy wasn't going. Um, 
you know, one of them has got the flu, I'd run home, you know, every two hours to just check on them and rush back. And so I sort of wore myself out doing all those things, but deep down inside, the guilt gnaws at you. But that's par for the course. Anybody who thinks it can be done without the guilt means you just decided to give up something completely like motherhood or building a family or whatever. If you want to do it all, it's juggling and guilt. And let's be honest. I mean, your male counterparts are not asked these questions and 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 don't ex- the, the expectations that they might feel any guilt aren't there, right? Like we, is it, I mean, do we expect different things from women CEOs than we do from men CEOs? I think we expect different things from women, period. Uh, you know, yeah. we think women are responsible for kids, women are responsible for families. Not true. In my case, Raj and I both felt we were responsible for the kids and the family and our future. And so I think it's very, very important everybody who has the idea or desire to get married and have kids has a conversation with your spouse about who's going to do what. Uh, have the honest conversations because it cannot be done alone. And uh, uh, women in particular have to let go of perfection because very often we we women want to be perfect at everything. It's in our DNA. And, uh, you know, at some point you may have to give up things that you wanted to do. Uh, they might have to say, you know what, I'm not going to keep the house spotless. I'm just going to let it go because I'm just exhausted. Um, and many of us run ourselves ragged because we want to be viewed as uh, getting everything right. Um, and I think... All of that is a formula for failure. So the best thing is for us to have the honest conversations with the spouse, make sure that both are on the same page when it comes to who's going to do what to support the family. Uh, in my case, I had an added advantage, a guy. I had uh, my husband's family that unusually decided that they're going to support me, whatever happens. So they were my biggest tailwinds. They would call and say, uh, you know, don't quit your job. We're there to help you. And, uh, you know, tell us what kind of help you want. And we'll, you know, we're so proud of you and what you've accomplished. And so it was not just my husband. I had wonderful in-laws. And uh, I think uh, all in-laws have to stop and think about the future and say, if you're going to let the women and men both fly, uh, we have to also lean in. This becomes an intergenerational responsibility. Indra, it's... it's it's amazing because of all the things you accomplished and I mean the fact that you I mean where you started life and and where you got to I mean the top of the corporate world and yet you write that at times in your career you really felt like you had to downplay your achievements Hmm. why I think that goes back to the crown in the garage comment that my mother made way back in 2000 when I came home. And uh, I just wanted to share my uh, big news. And her point was, you enter the house and you leave the crown in the garage. I think that we still live in a society where uh, the woman's achievement is downplayed and the men's achievements are elevated. We're making changes, but we still live in that society. 
Um, I think in our home, um, uh, you know, the dialogue and discussion was different. My mother grew up at a time when uh, it was that way. You you know, you play up the men's achievements and you downplay the women's achievements. That's how you keep a harmonious family. In my family now, my husband will celebrate my achievements like it's all Nobel Prizes that I've won. Okay? <laughs> Just as I would his. We both lift each other up. Maybe that's the future generation. Because if we don't do that, then what happens is we're basically telling women, we're all going to keep one foot on the brake and one foot in the accelerator. Yeah. And the foot on the brake is going to be a little heavier than the foot on the accelerator, which I don't think is fair. When you look at the future of work, you, you, one of the things you, you, you wrote when you stepped down after 12 years as CEO of Pepsi, record amazing amount of time. I think the average CEO lasts for four years at companies, most companies. Um, you wrote about um, how you, you wished you, you would have spent a little bit more time with family and you encouraged people to think about that in their own careers. And, and you've been more vocal, more, more vocal about that since you've um, stepped down running day-to-day operations at Pepsi um, about, you know, focusing on on our lives. I think you even, I think I'm paraphrasing, but you write, you know, our lives mm-hmm. are short. We don't have that much time mm-hmm. on this planet. And we have to focus on what actually matters. Work is important. Career is important. Achievement is important. But it's only one one part of our mm-hmm. of our lives. I think, you know, I sit on various future of work committees and, um, you know, we talk about how things are going to change post-pandemic. Um, and I have to tell you, one of the things that we never talk about in these committee meetings is the whole issue of care. Uh, who's going to do all the caregiving? Mm-hmm. How is it going to get done? Uh, how are we going to make sure that we have a pathway for highly educated women to also contribute to the economy as much as they are family builders and uh, you know help nurture and develop the family? And I really believe that the issue on care is a big blind spot among global leaders. And I'm in a missed opportunity. And now, now I speak as an economist, not a feminist a guy. Because when I was PepsiCo CEO, and I was in the rooms of power with all the men CEOs, we talked about the future of work as if it's about technology, the world, GDP growth, retraining of employees. We never mentioned family and care and who's going to do the jobs and how are we going to do it in a world where we've got a lot of aging people. Uh, my belief is that if there are more women in the room, in those groups and rooms of power, this would have come up sooner. It's a big missed opportunity. Uh, and I think that we have to elevate the discussion from uh, you know, quiet discussions that don't lead anywhere to making it front and center to say, Hey, with the aging population and with uh, a need to have children and young people to build families, at the same time, the best and brightest to be deployed in the service of you know, furthering the economy. If we don't focus on care as a critical support system for the country, we're not going to have a society that's happy. We'll have another Japan or South Korea where the birth rate is low and the requirements of jobs and children conflict so much because what's happening is young people are now delaying having kids or choosing not to have kids at all. And if that happens, it's going to debilitate our economic system down the road. 
And so I think that we should stop framing this as female and say it's about families. And it's not a feminist argument, it's an economist argument. When you think about the journey you have taken, um, and your, this, your book is really just a terrific um, and inspiring story. I mean, to, to have come from where you came and grown up where you grew up and not only to come to the U.S. and, and build a career and a family, but to, to, to get to the highest levels of, of business, um, I mean, could, could you ever have imagined that? I mean, did, did, was there any part of your early life where you could have envisioned that? No, because I never thought I'd come to the United States. And I will tell you one thing, Guy. I don't believe my story could have been possible in any other country but the United States. So it's only here that somebody like me can come here, work their tail off, contribute, be acknowledged, promoted, mentored, developed, and then ultimately even selected to run such a big, iconic American company. So in many ways, um, I'm a product of my upbringing, my own, uh, you know, drive for better performance and my hard work, etc., etc. But I'm also a proud product of the many mentors and I'm an extremely proud product of, uh, you know, America as we know it. That's Indra Nui, former chairperson and CEO of PepsiCo. In 2018, Indra stepped down as CEO she currently serves on several boards, including the International Cricket Council. Indra is a huge fan of cricket. She actually helped start the first women's cricket team at Madras Christian College back in India in the early 1970s. Although since moving to the U.S. in the late 70s, she says she fell in love with something entirely new, the New York Yankees. Hey, thanks for listening to the show this week. The music for this episode was composed and performed by Drop Electric. I'm Guy Raz, and you've been listening to Wisdom from the Top from Luminary, Built It Productions, and NPR.